This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Also, we welcome our first-time guest, Adam Hitchcock, host of Movies and Podcorn, the podcast. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. How are you, Adam? I'm doing pretty well, considering the world we live in. Uh, Doing pretty well, I think. Yeah, it's a strange new reality in the uh, 2020s here. But with all new guests to the show, we like to ask a few questions to allow the audience to get to know you. I hope you have some answers ready for us, hopefully just some quick hitters. But tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and why you love movies. Uh, Yeah, so I'm in college. I'm getting my master's degree in psychology right now. Uh, And I live in Maine, so shout out to any Mainers listening. I love movies because I love stories. I just love the way... Uh, storytellers can make you feel and going to the movies is one of my favorite experiences going out with your friends sharing an experience with 200 people you know seeing it on the screen feeling the sound like course through your body i just i love movies so much i love the way they make me feel completely and 100 percent agree so then what is your favorite movie and why yes my favorite movie is pretty recent one and a lot of people saw it avengers endgame is my Ah. favorite movie ever And not really because of that movie itself, but just, I mean, Iron Man came out when I was 12. I grew up with these characters basically my entire life. So watching them get to the end game, the final journey was like watching my childhood flash before my eyes. And it just, I cried 13 times when I saw that movie the first time I counted. It just made me feel emotionally unlike any other movie has ever made me feel. So that's why it's my favorite. I have distinct memories of watching that in the theaters and I won't spoil too much, but there were absolutely two hell yeah moments in that ending sequence up before, just before the final battle where they're finally going to avenge Thanos. And, uh, I don't know. I, I still don't know how they pulled off the, the complete magical trick that was 23 movies, 24 movies and getting the right ending for most of the major characters all in one thing. So Mad props to the MCU and the Russo brothers and everybody who worked on that one, because frankly, up until maybe the last couple of movies, I just haven't thought the MCU has been anywhere near as good since. True. And in that movie, the, the, the last hour, the fight is actually my least favorite hour of the whole movie. I love the first hour when the characters are just, they're living in the loss that they suffered. And then the second hour, is like greatest hits of the MCU. It's so much fun. So the fight is actually my least favorite part of the movie. All right. Well, we might have to have you back when we get to the five-year period and can actually discuss that one. But we probably have a few more MCU movies to cover before we get to that point. Finally, what makes a good movie for you? I think two things. It either makes me feel something or makes me want to watch it again. So if I have an emotional experience with a movie it's good. If I, you know, and if I, if it's something that I'm like, I hear the name and I go, Oh, I want to watch that again. That makes a good movie for me. I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty easy mark when it comes to what makes a good movie. Just do I want to watch it again? Or did I have, you know, did I feel something when I watched it? Very cool. Very cool. All right. Then tonight we apply our patent pending Stanley rubric 
to Interstellar from 2014, written and directed by Christopher Nolan, co-written by Jonathan Nolan, his brother, starring Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway, Jessica Chastain, and Michael Caine. This movie received five Oscar nominations, winning Best Visual Effects. So, Dad, let me start here. What is this movie about? Well, it's about, it's a dystopia universe that the Earth is dying, and it's about how love can overcome all of the pitfalls associated. It transcends, I guess, even science in and of itself, because science has been failing. It's only through love transcending through the ultimate dimensions that the data, the information is brought to uh, Earth to save it. Adam, do you agree with that? Yes. It's it's one of my least favorite parts of the movie. Uh, but yes, I agree that love kind of transcending you know, the problems that we face is definitely, I think, the main point of the film. I think I, I extrapolated a little bit beyond that, again, because I think that's maybe a little too cliche. I thought it was actually about several forces that transcended dimensions, because I think to a certain extent, Matt Damon's character has a bit of a point that survival instinct also transcends a lot of forces. And then I think one of the other pieces that's maybe underhailed but is a central part of the movie is gravity. And so there's gravity in the black hole that they have to constantly overcome and that they are bound by its relativity. And so to me, it's about all of these forces that are stronger than anything else in the universe. So Adam, let's start with you. What is your relationship to this movie? I absolutely love this movie. This is, you know, like the desert island game that you play with your friends of like, you can only take five movies. This is one of those five that I'm taking. I absolutely love it. It's one of the select few films I saw three times in the theaters. It was so good. I went with my high school girlfriend at the time to watch it. It was so good. I came back to my buddies who aren't really into movies that much. And I was like, we're going tonight. You have to see this movie. And they loved it. I, I can't get enough of this movie. I've seen it probably 30 times. And I still feel the exact same way as I saw it the first time. It's I just love it so much. Is it to the point where you seemingly get something new out of it every single time? Kind of. I don't know how much, how many new things I'm picking up every time because I can almost like cite this movie word for word um, at this point. But like the emotional impacts of some moments still hit the exact same as they did the first time. I still cry every time I watch this movie. Yeah, it's ju- it just holds up really well, which is a category we'll get to later, but holds up really well for me. Dad, had you seen this film before this week? I had not. I think, though, that, and maybe I'm wrong, if I would have seen it then, I think I would have reacted differently to it then than I do now, because I think as you experience different things in your life, you react to movies differently. And right now, I'm, I see that uh, I'm getting into that old age category and I'm seeing things a little differently. And so that did have some impact with the whole concept of trying to leave a legacy and to have a, uh, to show love to your family. To be fair, you were in the older age category when this movie originally came out eight years ago. I'm not sure what category you're in now. That was middle age then. I'm old age. You were 50! That's middle age. 
All in good fun. I was telling Adam before we got on that I'd only seen this movie one time and it was in theaters. And I do remember being somewhat disappointed by comparison to some of the other movies that I really love of Christopher Nolan. As I've said on multiple occasions, he, at least for right now, still remains my favorite personal director. And part of that has to do with I love The Dark Knight and I love Inception so much that they're two of my three like favorite films. I never really rank it. It's like 1A, 1B, 1C. The other being The Departed for anybody who's interested. Ooh. I can finish the list. But those all have a seminal moment in my life kind of etched in my memory as to how I experienced a film in a theater. There was a social aspect to The Dark Knight, but also because I'm just a huge Batman fan. That always appealed to me in a way that I didn't think anybody else captured the spirit of Batman and grounded it so well. Unfortunately, there have been too many people trying to pose on that for, well, the last 15 years, essentially. Inception, to me, was the one that kind of broke my brain, and (laughs) I was so surprised I could follow it, but there were new things constantly. I really wanted to rewatch it multiple times because I knew there were things that I didn't understand, and yet, even by the end, I just felt such a satisfaction. And so, this is not the film he did right after Inception. He had done The Dark Knight Rises, but this is his follow-up to finally the end of the Dark Knight trilogy. So I think there was a lot of expectation for this film when it came out. And so for the guy who did the Dark Knight trilogy, and I loved the prestige, and I loved Inception, to do this movie that was so high concept that it kind of went beyond me, I felt a little disappointed at the time. But having now rewatched it this week for the pod, I can't understand exactly why. To me, this actually appealed a lot more, and I think I could probably put it back into a more comfortable level with some of the celebrated Nolans. And I think this is one that, while right now, I think it still gets a few marks down by certain critics or certain audience members that can't respond well to the scientific smorgasbord that's basically thrown at you throughout the movie. It's not just like one thing where it's one term or whatever else. No, they really kind of overload you at times. I would say that this is one that I think will come back around much in the way that 2001 A Space Odyssey is starting to do so as well, which is the movie that I think in many ways Nolan wanted to echo through this film. So let's give everybody at home our plot summary and background on this movie. Dad, do you feel up to doing a plot summary for us? All right. In a future Earth where humans are finding the planet more uninhabitable due to the blight that is causing mass famine, as it kills many major crops and regular massive dust storms. Joseph Coop Cooper, Matthew McConaughey, volunteers for a mission to find three previous space explorers who have been sent to find a new home planet for mankind. However, as Coop and his teammate, Dr. Brandt and Hathaway, become exposed to the relativity of a black hole near the galaxy they're exploring, time slows down for them, and they are forced to view everyone they cared from from Earth lived decades without them, including Coop's two children, Murphy, Murph Cooper, Jessica Chastain, and Tom, Casey Affleck, who have to live their lives without him, wondering if he will ever succeed in his mission and find his way back. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Christopher Nolan as the director slash writer, Jonathan Nolan as co-writer, 
Hans Zimmer as composer, Hoyt Van Hoytema as cinematographer, Matthew McConaughey as Joseph Cooper, Anne Hathaway as Dr. Amelia Brand, Jessica Chastain as Murphy Murph Cooper, Mackenzie Foy as Young Murph, Ellen Burstyn as Elderly Murph, John Lithgow as Donald, Michael Caine as Professor John Brand, David Gaiasi as Romilly, Wes Bentley as Doyle, Casey Affleck as Tom Cooper, Timothy Chalamet as Young Tom, Matt Damon as Dr. Mann, Bill Irwin as Tars, both the voice and puppetry, and Case, only the puppetry. The voice of Case was Josh Stewart, Topher Grace as Getty, Leah Cairns as Lois, David Ayelowo as school principal, Colette Wolfe as Miss Hanley, and William Devane as Williams. Recognition for this movie, Interstellar released on November 5th, 2014. It currently holds a 73% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a score of 74 on Metacritic, and a 4.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd. The film grossed $188 million in the U.S. and Canada, and $489.4 million in other countries for a worldwide total of $677.4 million against a production budget of $165 million. Interstellar received five Oscar nominations, including Best Original Score, Production Design, Sound Editing, and Sound Mixing, and it won for Best Visual Effects. Richard Roper of the Chicago Sun-Times awarded the film a full four stars and wrote, This is one of the most beautiful films I have ever seen in terms of its visuals and its overriding message about the powerful forces of the one thing that we all know but can't measure in scientific terms, love. Author George R.R. Martin called Interstellar, the most ambitious and challenging science fiction film since Kubrick's 2001. And in 2020, Empire Magazine ranked it as one of the best films of the 21st century. Did you know? In an early version of the film, Steven Spielberg was attached to direct the movie in 2006 and hired Jonathan Nolan to write the screenplay, but eventually chose other projects instead. In 2012, after Spielberg's departure, Jonathan Nolan suggested the project to his brother, Christopher Nolan. Did you know? Early in pre-production, Dr. Kip Thorne, the technical advisor and scientific liaison, laid down two guidelines to strictly follow. Nothing would violate established physical laws and that all the wild speculations would spring from science and not from the creative mind of a screenwriter. Writer, producer, and director Christopher Nolan accepted these terms as long as they did not get in the way of the making of the movie. That did not prevent clashes, though. At one point, Thorne spent two weeks talking Nolan out of an idea about traveling faster than light. Did you know? To create the wormhole and black hole, Dr. Kip Thorne collaborated with visual effects supervisor Paul J. Franklin and his team at Double Negative. Thorne provided pages of deeply sourced theoretical equations to the team, which then created new CGI software programs based on these equations to create accurate computer simulations of these phenomena. Some individual frames took up to 100 hours to render, and ultimately the whole CGI program reached to 800 terabytes of data. The resulting visual effects provided Thorne with new insight into the effects of gravitational lensing and accreation disks surrounding black holes, and led him to writing two scientific papers, one for the astrophysics community and one for the computer graphics community. Did you know? According to Dr. Kip Thorne, the largest degree of creative license in the movie is the clouds of the ice planet, which are structures that probably go beyond the material strength which ice would be able to support. Did you know? 
The wormhole was placed near Saturn as a reference to 2001 A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick because Kubrick originally planned for part of the movie to take place at Saturn. Unfortunately, as visual effects technology wasn't able to make Saturn's rings at that time, he changed it to Jupiter. Did you know? The majority of shots of the robot TARS were not computer-generated. Rather, TARS was a practical puppet controlled and voiced on set by Bill Irwin, who was then digitally erased from the movie. Irwin also puppeteered the robot case, but in that instance had his voice dubbed over by Josh Stewart. Did you know? Dr. Kip Thorne won a scientific bet against Stephen Hawking upon the astrophysics theory that underlies this movie. As a consequence, Hawking had to subscribe to Penthouse Magazine for an entire year. This famous bet was depicted in The Theory of Everything from 2014. And with that, we'll take our first break and be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we will be discussing our second Akira Kurosawa film, and possibly his best in the 1950 classic, Rashomon. Written and directed by Akira Kurosawa, co-written by Shinobu Hashimoto, starring Toshiro Mifune, Masayuki, and Takashi Shimura. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, gentlemen, let's go to best performance then. Adam, let's give you first crack. Sure. I had Cooper, Matthew McConaughey. I thought, um, I love McConaughey. I love pretty much everything he's ever done. For me, this is my favorite performance he's ever given. I think he's very open and emotional, um, and he's also like, a quasi action star in this movie. He doesn't do a whole lot of action scenes, but it just kind of feels like as we go through the movie, like this dude's an action star. Like he could do anything right now. He's kind of doing like his Tom Cruise, you know, Maverick impersonation here with the pilot stuff. I just think he's so vulnerable and so open emotionally. I I think he's the best performance. It was between this and I think Dallas Buyers Club, which might've been the year before, maybe the year during that he really cemented his place in the reconnaissance, as it was so-called at the time. Did you have him down anywhere, Dad? I had him as best performance. I, I actually uh, have his book, Green Lights. I do as well. And I found that that book led me to believe that McConaughey did not have to do a whole lot of acting for this role. There was so much of him that was part of this role. That or either it was written that way or the way he portrayed it made it seem more tied to him. You know, I, I know they always say that Jack Nicholson never did anything but play Jack Nicholson, but I think McConaughey in this particular circumstance and in several films I've seen him in seems to play himself a lot and it has a, a way of morphing into the character that you really need in that particular film. Yeah, I think once he really busted out of the romantic comedy era that he had been a part of, that you really got to see the multiple sides of what he really could do with his expanse as an actor, and frankly, as an emotional actor. And I think that's really the one thing that I would highlight about his performance here, is you see the pain and suffering that he's going through pretty much from the time that he leaves home up until the final moments where he's reunited with his daughter. So... It's really no surprise that I think most of us had him on our list. For me, it was actually best secondary, but I think it's an incredible performance by him. The only reason I didn't go with him is just the amount of achievements I think that Christopher Nolan had to go through in making this. 
from the writing perspective, even though the majority of the script was written by his brother, to all of the little things that he had to assemble, talking about the rendering and the CGI, talking about his collaboration and famously with Hans Zimmer to writing the score that would become so central to the emotional feel of this movie, to coordinating all of the action, the set pieces, which I don't think he gets enough credit for for the amount of practical set pieces that he arranges in movies, and then finally to getting the best emotion out of his actors as this movie really is about forces of emotion beyond what the natural laws of physics allow you to have. And so for me, Nolan was my best performer, but I so I certainly don't think McConaughey was far behind as a best secondary. Dad, who did you have as best secondary? Nolan. And for basically the same reasons. I guess I would, I'd would i have to split it between Jonathan and Christopher. I know Christopher probably deserves it more because of it, but since so much of this was written by Jonathan, the script and how it went and all the intricacies of the physics would have taken an extremely long time for the average person to wrap their head around and be able to make it into something that would be entertaining. I think I read that he spent four years on the script and even took classes on astrophysics in order to understand the concepts better. I think you're correct in that. I, I remember reading that somewhere as well. It might have even been five. So I, that's where I went with the secondary. I actually might push back a little bit on the Christopher Nolan emotional thing. I feel like this movie is fairly cold emotionally if you took McConaughey out of it. Like, I'm not sure many other characters have an overly external amount of emotion coming out. I think it's more McConaughey driving that. So I would push a little back on that. I, I took secondary performance as like a smaller role in the movie, uh, maybe not second best. So I went with Timothy Chalamet. I think he's only in it for a little bit of, uh, of the movie, but I think he does a great job. And it's one of his first movies, I think. He certainly isn't as, wasn't as big as he is now, but I think he does a great job. He's very funny. And then one of the moments that breaks me in the movie every time is when he's doing the video um, to his dad. And he says, dad, I like, I met a new girl. I think she's the one. And he and McConaughey just starts crying. Um, so I want to shout him. I think he delivers a great performance here. Just to, I guess, push back on your pushback for a second here and, and extrapolate it. And I, certainly I think you might be more of an expert on some of this than I am given your background. But I would actually say that this is a, a significantly emotional movie, even from the other characters. Everybody is displaying some type of longing or chasing some type of feeling. Dr. Brand in trying to save mankind, despite the fact that he lied about everything. You can see on his deathbed that Michael Caine is giving a masterclass performance, in my opinion at least, that somebody only like Michael Caine can do. Or you want to talk about, I think, Chastain, who... Did she win the Oscar last year or was it the year before? This last year. Yes, it was for this last year. Thank you for the eyes of Tammy Faye. But her emotion is more bent on her anger and resentment at her father for leaving her and then boils over when she finds out that there was all these lies that were built in order to send him away in the first place and whether he's a part of that. I think that Casey Affleck, is showing a lot of emotion in his, but again, his is rage because he's just trying to provide and do the best he can to carry on in a existence that he was thrust into and was thrust upon him 
basically by everybody who said he couldn't be more than just a farmer. So there are a lot of emotional performances to me. I just don't think it's all of these people breaking down in such an emotional way that McConaughey was. His is a lot more easy to identify in the middle portion of the film. And I think we are supposed to identify with him. And that's why I think it's an easier thing to pick out. But I don't think this movie is lacking in emotion from the rest of its acting cast. Yeah, that's fair. In essence, I think you're talking about each of these characters had a a primary emotion that ranged through the gambit of human emotions. Everything from Dr. Mann and loneliness to all of the rest. And so I think that's what, to some extent, you know, they always say that Gilligan's Island was based upon the seven deadly sins. And it's almost as if this is set up to try to put a character in the film that conveys a very basic human emotion, betrayal, rage, loss, love, etc. I don't think you have gluttony, but the point is taken. I think it's possibly very astute by you. Gluttony is a deadly sin, not a human emotion. All right, fine. You caught me in movie jail. You happy? Yes. I won't even cut it for you. (laughs) So then, most charismatic, I'm going to go a little bit off the board, but kind of close to where Adam was. I actually thought one of the most charismatic characters in this was the young Murph, the childhood Murph, Mackenzie Foy. I just thought that she had a lot more to do than Jessica Chastain as far as playing that character in a different stage of her life. I think that that had to pay off more than just about any other character as far as the emotional resonance, because you have to really feel the separation between a father and daddy's little girl. And that has to become the central basis by which you cleave them apart early on in the movie, only to bring them back together. And that has to be your emotional resonance that pays off in the third act. So for me, I thought she was one of the most charismatic characters because I had to care about her care about that her dad was leaving and sympathize with her pain and her resentment and anger towards him so that she didn't even say goodbye. That's really great. Dad, who did you have down? Sir Michael Caine. I just, every time I see him in a film, I just, he just, I gravitate towards him. I've been watching him in films for 50 years, 58 years. I don't want 58, so maybe 55 years. He's just really good. And like a fine wine, he just seems to get better with age. He just takes up the screen whenever he's in it. Um, Yeah, those are great choices. I love the young Murph thing too, because my dad left when I was three, and I don't think he went off to to a black hole. Uh, That would explain a lot, though. Not to save humankind. Uh, (laughs) it It would explain a lot if he did. So anything with like a father, father, child thing gets me. And the moment that wrecks me in this movie the most is when he drives off and then she bursts out the door like dad, that move. That's where I cried the, the hardest every time when I watch this movie. Most charismatic, I chose Tars, uh, Bill Irwin. I thought Tars was awesome in this movie. He has so many great one liners, the self-destruct thing and then the, the, the cue light and everything. I, th- I think he's great. He's so funny. You know, it struck me now watching this for only the second time, how many people that are in this that probably weren't big necessarily at the time, but are fairly recognizable names all of a sudden, you know, 
David Oyelowo is playing a two second part in this film. And yet he was nominated, I think the same year for a best actor Oscar for playing Dr. King in Selma. I mean, (laughs) that's the kind of actors that want to be in some of these films with certain directors. And I think Nolan attracts a lot of the very best actors in Hollywood. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Chalamet, Chastain, they were, they weren't as big nearly as they are now. I mean, we could say something about Topher Grace, but what did he have, like four lines? True. And he had that 70s show, so he was, I mean, he already kind of had his peak. Well, he did have to convey a, a surprise look when Chastain kissed him. That's true. <laughs> that took a lot. I'm sure he <laughs> earned his money there. Let's go to best scene. I have nominated Murph Gets in Trouble at School simply for the fact that we, for whatever reason, in a movie that's supposed to be scientific fiction and explore the scientific accuracy of the galaxy. We somehow have that men didn't land on the moon as the primary working theory of mankind. (laughs) The ghost gives directions to NASA. The first planet, which is about the only way I could describe the tidal wave planet. Maybe I could have gone with tidal wave planet, but Coop watches his children grow up on video. Dr. Mann or Dr. Edmonds, the decision between which of the other two planets to go to. Dr. Man's deceit, leaving something behind, Coop finds the singularity, and then Coop reunites with Murph. Did I miss any? All mine were, were said. Can I say like a 30-second like a story about the yeah, landing thing? Yeah, absolutely. So in, uh, in college, because uh, I ran track, so we were, on a, we were at a track meet in Miami. And my teammate and I, my buddy Zach, were joking about the moon landing being fake. And a girl on our team comes over and is like, oh my God, you believe it too. I was like, I was like, what? She's like, the moon landing was fake. I'm so glad like someone else believes it. And I was like, oh God, don't, please don't talk to me. <laughs> yeah. So what do you folks think is the best scene? Dad, let's let you go first. Dr. Mann's deception. I, I think it's just a raw moment where Dr. Mann basically admits that the survival instinct wins out overall rationale and the need to be with other humans. Isolation is the worst. Without getting too religious, I, I really think that uh, if, if you comprehend what hell is, hell is just a void where you have no content or contact with another human or with any other being for the rest of your life uh, or as long as your soul exists because I mean, the, the most formal for, or the most detrimental form of punishment in the was in the uh, penal system of this country is isolation or solitary confinement or a supermax is you're isolated for 23 hours a day, and the toll it takes on mental mentally on people is is very significant. I had a man's planet slash the docking sequence. I think, and I lean more towards the docking sequence. I think that is, might be one of my favorite scenes in all of movies is, is when that ship explodes and then everything just goes, they suck the sound right out of the movie. And then Coop is just like, or Hathaway is like, what are you doing? He's like docking. And then that score from Hans Zimmer just comes full blast. And, oh, it's, and you're feeling every G when they're spinning. I think that's, the most thrilling scene for by far in the movie. Yeah, I would agree. That's a highly 
adrenaline rush scene. But for me, I think, and I respond a lot to the emotion of this movie, I was incredibly moved, and I am, at least when I remember it back in theaters, it was one of the things that was indelible to me. And probably the second thing I thought of when I watched this movie, but I think it was so much more moving at this place and time in my life. And that's him watching his kids grow up on video. Particularly, you get to the last one where Chastain finally comes on screen and says, I thought you'd be home by now. You said at one time we might be the same age. I'm the age you are when you left. Oh, God, does that hit. I forgot that line. And it's just like a ton of bricks on your heart. That's questionable, though. Like I, she, I don't think she is the same age as Matthew McConaughey was when he left. That doesn't make any sense to me. She looks way younger than he did when. <laughs> Movie justice, man. Yeah. Movie justice. That was my second favorite scene. If I had to pick a second. Better skincare. <laughs> so then, favorite scene. Yeah, and it's the same as the best one for me. It's the it's the man's planet slash docking sequence. That's just. I'm on the edge of my, I'm like borderline standing up when that happens. Cause I'm just full of adrenaline. My heart is racing. It's like, I'm having a heart attack. Like it's just, it's, I don't breathe the whole scene. It's just incredible. The scene where he is trying to make connection again with uh, Murph and the watch and that whole thing to me, it's uh, it, it just, it shows the extent uh, that a father will go to, to keep his promises it's also, I'll tell you up front, to my most indelible moment. It was mine as well. It was the number one thing that when I remembered this film and we were discussing it when we were going to discuss it on the show, that, oh, yeah, I remember that scene. It stuck in my brain more than just about anything else with this movie. And I could remember some bits and pieces here and there. But that one thing and the kind of emotional resolution of the film stuck out to me. It's both my favorite and the most indelible because I think it really has the payoff of combining not only the logical puzzles that you've been going through from the beginning, who was the ghost? How did he end up there? But also how is the mission going to be solved? Because you assume that they're not just going to expire on earth. They're going to solve this. Even though it ends the way you would like it to, it's still thrilling to find the answers of how they made it to that point. And up until that point, you really just don't have those solutions. With this, I think it offers that. And then on top of it, you add the emotional layering of seeing his child through space and time in the same bedroom and knowing and figuring out the answer of, I was not the one chosen, but I'm the bridge to the person that was chosen to save humankind. And to me, that all had a great finality to it that even though we have the coda at the end where he meets his daughter, to me, this was the much more emotionally impactful and cathartic experience of the movie as opposed to that scene. All right. Uh, Adam, the only one left with an indelible moment. Yeah. I mean, I chose the docking sequence, but, but I mean, I've rambled on about that for a while now. So I'll throw out an extra shout out to the ocean planet scene, which is what I called it. I think that does a great job too of, of creating suspense. I mean, when you, when he looks out and he's like, those aren't mountains and he's like back to the ranger now. And, and you, and they, you just feel like them flying down this huge roller coaster. Um, and, and you just feel everything. You feel every bump, you feel every shake, you feel every drop. That scene is great. I would go docking ultimately, but I think the ocean planet scene is really great too. 
That's a good call. And a shout out to Doyle during the movie, played by Wes Bentley, who is now more famous than ever for being on the show Yellowstone as the most poorly written character on that show. <laughs> All right, with that, we'll take our second break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, you can sign up for our newsletter at the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Gmode Podcast, or find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast. With that, Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, we do. Unfortunately, Roger E. Mosley, 83, an American actor, um, best known for his uh, continuing role on Magnum P.I., and uh, was a longtime character actor on television. Yes, I read in his obituary that his primary character, because I've never seen Magnum P.I., but he was the helicopter pilot in the original version of it with Tom Selleck, and he also made some reappearances as a completely new character in the on the reboot as well. But as far as being a TV character actor, I think he appeared on just about every major network TV show at one point or another, from Love Boat to the Brady Bunch, to just about everything in between at some point or another during a fairly long career. We also lost Gene LaBelle, 89, an American martial arts and stunt performer. He did uh, Dark Man, L.A. Confidential, and Total Recall, among others. I was actually reading up on him, and a movie both you and I love from 2019, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the Brad Pitt character Cliff Booth is actually based on Gene LaBelle. We also lost a Clue Gallagher, 93, an American actor, Return of the Living Dead, The Tall Man, The Last Picture Show. He was a longtime character actor who had done dozens of uh, films and had appeared on television. He was known best uh, on television, I think, as playing uh, parts in westerns, and in some films as Westerns. Never a big star, but uh, a, a guy who worked continuously throughout his career. And I think one of his last films, oddly enough, was also Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We also lost David McAuliffe, 89, American writer. He did the books Truman and uh, John Adams. He was the uh, narrator for the Civil War documentary series. And Seabiscuit, the movie host of the American experience. This is a personal loss to me as I think I've read most of his books and always, uh, always treasured him and uh, would run out to buy whatever he was uh, finished or whatever he recently finished. Yeah, I did not know until I was kind of reading up on his passing this week that he was the narration behind the Civil War series a series that I know that you really enjoy as well. But the fact that both the Truman book was turned into an HBO TV movie, as well as the John Adams limited series on HBO, and both were very celebrated. I think he's contributed a lot both in literature as well as film and TV. And so obviously a fairly big loss or a significant loss to not just you, but a lot of historical nonfiction fans around the world. And lastly, Olivia Newton-John, 73, finally succumbed to her breast cancer that she'd been battling for multiple years. Star of Grease, Xanadu, two of a kind, and uh, produced one of the first big 
videos or, or music videos in physical. You can't be uh, someone who grew up in the uh, 70s and early 80s uh, without having some attachment to Olivia Newton-John. I thought she was one of the few lone bright spots in a movie that I would probably heavily deadpan in Greece, And she was always very charismatic in that movie, so I think that's about the only relationship I have to her, other than I know of the song Physical, but I think it's hard to give context to that historically if you didn't live through it. It might be. Yeah, growing up, I, I mean, I did musicals. It was in band and all that stuff growing up. So Grease was one of my one of my favorite musicals. That was sad to see. Absolutely. So we recognize all of these figures and their place in both TV and film and give them here a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Let's go to best lines, gentlemen. First one I have down, Cooper. We used to look up at the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt. I had that as well. Yeah, I think it's one of the, I think, a half dozen aspirational quotes near the beginning of the movie. Um, I had, this is Dr. Brand, Lazarus came back from the dead. And then Cooper goes, sure, but he had to die in the first place. Dr. Brand, love is the one thing that transcends time and space. Maybe we should trust that, even if we can't understand it. Dr. Brand, the elder, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Cooper, you're telling me it takes two numbers to measure your own ass, but only one to measure my son's future. (laughs) Oh, I forgot that one. Cooper, Newton's third law. You gotta leave something behind. Cooper, mankind was born on Earth. It was never meant to die here. Cooper, you told them I liked farming. (laughs) Dr. Mann, we have attachments. But even without a family, I can promise you that yearning to be with other people is powerful. That emotion is the foundation of what makes us human. Cooper, we've always defined ourselves by the ability to overcome the impossible, and we count these moments. These moments when we dare to aim higher, to break barriers, to reach for the stars, to make the unknown known. We count these moments as our proudest achievements, but we lost all that. Or perhaps we've just forgotten that we are still pioneers and we've barely begun and that our greatest accomplishments cannot be behind us, that our destiny lies above us. I only had the four. Okay. He's out. Dad? Cooper, when I was a kid, it seemed like they made something new every day, some gadget or idea, like every day was Christmas. And this is my last one. Cooper and Brand. Cooper, you're a scientist, Brand. Brand. So listen to me when I say that love isn't something that we invented. It's observable, powerful. It has to mean something. Love has meaning, yes. Social utility, social bonding, child rearing. Brand. We love people who have died. Where's the social utility in that? Cooper. None. Brand. Maybe it means something more. Something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. I'm drawn across the universe to someone I haven't seen in a decade who I know is probably dead. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we shouldn't trust that even if we can't understand it. All right, Cooper, yes, the tiniest possibility of seeing Wolf again excites me. That doesn't mean I'm wrong. 
Cooper. Honestly, Amelia, it might. You got any left, Ed? I'm out. All right. You gentlemen ready for the Stanley rubric? I am. Oh, do we not do funniest lines? We just combine them both. Oh, then I have a few more. If, if we want to move on, it's fine. Yeah, no, go ahead. Okay, I had a, I had a bunch for funniest, actually. So. <laughs> See, and I thought you were given the funniest lines already. No, a lot of my best were funny, but they um, – so I had um, uh, young Tom, what about the flat tire as, as they're speeding off? I had Cooper when he comes back from the meeting. I got you suspended. Donald, want to clean that up when you're finished praying to it? Cooper, I'll turn you into an overqualified vacuum cleaner. And then Cooper again, I need some assurances that we're getting out of here, and I don't mean in the trunk of some car. All good entries. Okay, now I'm good. All right. So then, without further ado, the Stanley rubric. Dad, let's let you start on legacy. Okay. Industry seems to be kind of uh, picking up a legacy as the industry goes by. It's kind of becoming a standard bearer for what a sci-fi film should be and has become more of a modern template, advancing 2001. So to that extent, I went with a 4.5. For the public, I went with a little bit less because I don't know if this is a film that the general public watches a lot or has a real working knowledge of anymore. So I'm with a 3.5 for that. So that gives me an 8. Adam, do you feel comfortable enough going second or do you want me to go? Uh, yeah, I can go. I gave Legacy score a four overall, which I I think I made it clear I love this movie. But a lot of people that I've you know watched you know critics and read stuff about they don't like this movie, and I think this was kind of coming into this movie. I feel like was Nolan's apex kind of when he started making this because he had The Dark Knight, which is arguably the one of the greatest superhero movies ever. He had Inception, which people went nuts for. And then Dark Knight Rises was fine. And so I feel like this was like his apex. And I feel like this was kind of the start of the downfall that people perceive Nolan to have. He had this, you know, Tenet was a, I think, a train wreck. And I feel like people think he's a little kooky now. Like, it feels like they've, people have cooled on Christopher Nolan. And it kind of started with this movie because I think a lot of people didn't understand it. Um, the science was a little too heady for him. So they're like, I don't, you know, I'm checked out. And so I, I gave it a four because I don't think people in the industry really respect it as much as they should. And I would generally agree with that. I think that he has a lot of films that probably don't get as much play or as respect, but I do think that given a certain amount of time, they will come back around. I'm very curious to see what happens in five or 10 years when we revisit something like this and see where the stature of this film might be. Because I do think that it has somewhat of a cult following. I know it's one of your favorites, but I think it has a very loyal band of people that really love this movie as one of their seminal Nolan movies. And there are a lot of people who promote this as being one of his best. I think from the scientific community, it's one of the few films that really pleases them. And they are some of the first people to pick this apart. So to really not have too many critics within that, I think, is an achievement by itself on top of it. Ultimately, for where I'm going to go with my scoring, I had a three for the industry just because I think it still has a relatively low critic score. I don't think this is mass appeal, 
there are some complications. And I think I said it before we went on air. I might have said it at the beginning of the pod, but I do think this is Nolan's least accessible film just from the amount of things that you probably need to know coming in or maybe the the level of intelligence you may need to possess feeling comfortable with the amount of scientific terms that are pushed at you like an avalanche through almost the entirety of the film. There are so many concepts that to the average person, and I'm not any science nerd or physics guy. I maybe had a couple of classes in high school. I was always more into the humanities. It seems difficult to necessarily grasp. And yet I think there is a lot of humanity yet in this movie, which is the parts that I really connect to. And from that standpoint, I do think that this has a four for the public, not because I think this is going to be mentioned by everybody among Nolan's big movies, but I do think there is a section of the public like yourself, Adam, that really do go to bat for this movie in a way they don't for some of the other Nolan movies. And I do think there are a few critics that, while critical at the beginning, have already started to soften and come around, and it's only been eight years. So again, I'd be really curious to see where we are at two, five, ten years down the road and see where this movie has kind of come back around. Because I think, in many ways, the film that it's trying to echo, 2001 A Space Odyssey, it's taken 50 years for people to really appreciate that film as being one of the seminal great films of all time. If you talk to most people during the 60s, that was an abomination of a Stanley Kubrick film. So I ended up with a 7, and that will give us a 6.33 average between us. Impact significance. This is one where, again, I think in the initial term, it had a slightly lesser impact, and I think the stature will grow over time, but we haven't had enough time to grow out the entire legacy. I completely agree that this is the movie that Christopher Nolan probably spent the most of his film capital. And I I don't mean like in a tangible sense, but rather in the power and momentum he had coming out of probably one of the most successful film franchises up to that point that I think in many ways birthed the, the MCU and what they wanted to do and where they wanted to go in the Dark Knight series. And then on top of it, as you mentioned, Inception being such a critical darling and box office hit that he could have made just about anything. And he chose to do a film like this, which isn't as accessible as some of his previous films, but still had a lot of wow factor to it and show his artistic range. And I think he's really started to spend out some of that film capital that he has. I think another underappreciated movie of his that personally, I still think should have won Best Picture the year that it was out was Dunkirk and doesn't get its due that eventually that one's going to come around as well. But I went with a three and a half for the industry because, again, there were a lot of critics who just either didn't get it or thought that the emotional parts and love transcends all dimensions was too cliche type of theory writing that you get from a lot of critics. And I went with a three for the public because while it was a moneymaker for the year, it wasn't one of the best money makers for the amount that was spent. And it was a blockbuster because for whatever reason, I think Jordan Peele and Christopher Nolan are the only two directors right now that can attach their name and open a movie in a theater. So I ended up at a six and a half for the category. Dad, what did you have? 
I had three and a half for uh, the industry, um, simply because it did win a few Academy Awards, but the uh, critics themselves were split. Some loved it, some thought there were problems with it, some thought that the um, un- some of the underlying story was, was uh, poorly crafted. The public did go to see it, but it was not a huge box office runaway, so I wanted 3.4 there as well for a 7. You meant 3.5, not 3.4. 3.5, yes, for a 7. So, And by the way, the problem is is that sometimes I think Christopher Nolan is too smart for himself, even in Dunkirk. I spent the first few minutes of the film going, what in the world is going on? Because he's doing three different stories all at different time intervals. And they're moving at different speeds in the story. And it's it, if, if you're not like paying attention and really hyper-involved, you have a hard time. And I think that's the same problem he has here. Is sometimes I think he just gets too far ahead of himself. Well, that's why Batman Begins is probably like the Beatles' I Feel Fine, a very easy, palatable song that appeals to most masses. And something like Dunkirk is closer to Stairway to Heaven, needs repeat viewings in order to get everything out of it that you need to in order to appreciate it for its full value. See, the problem is we enabled him with Inception. When we all went nuts for that top, he's like, oh, oh, they want this. Like, this is what they want. Okay, if you want to argue that Nolan splooged all over the place, I give you Tenet. Yeah, I hate Tenet. I don't think that's a good movie. Dunkirk, I did like. I, I don't like Tenet. So what did you have down, Adam? So for the industry, I had a four because I feel like there were a bunch of space travel, space adventure movies that came after this. You had First Man with Ryan Gosling. Uh, I believe it was called Gravity with Sandra Bullock. That actually predated this. Oh, well, then scratch that. But Arrival came after this movie. Um, So I feel like there was a little bit of a boon in like space movies after this. The Martian. Yep, The Martian. That's a good one. Yeah, basically like a... A, a pre- I haven't seen it. I'm going to guess it's like a spiritual prequel to this movie of, of Dr. Man. Yeah, it has a lot of similar elements, and I do think it is a very rewatchable film, but it is a little bit long for most people, and it might be a little challenging, but I think it's more accessible, even though, and part of that has to do with the fact that the science isn't as accurate as this one, so it doesn't feel like it's coming from a science textbook. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then for um, general public, yeah, I gave that a three just because I do think people get bogged down in the science of it. I took rocket science when I was a freshman in high school. <laughs> no, I didn't mean that braggy, but like, so this movie tracked for me, like science-wise, it made sense to me. The part that actually loses me is the is the love thing at the end, which most people, that's what they love. But for me, the science part tracked. So that's kind of, I think, where I differ from the majority of people who don't like this movie is the science doesn't take me out of it. It actually sucks me in. But yeah, I think most people just get kind of freaked out by the over the top headiness that Nolan brings to his movies. So I believe that was a seven combined, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. So that's a 6.83 average between the three of us. Novelty. I really think the only downgrades to this are it's clear echoes and allusions to 2001 and the fact that doesn't every sci-fi story anymore start on a dystopian planet where either we're running for, from zombies or the planet is going to die and we have to move to another planet. 
and this is just one of two divergent paths. But after that, just about anything else, I think is actually somewhat unique to this film. And even the places that they take it, the acting performances that they get have a lot more to do with the grounded reality that Nolan likes to work on. But he's also one of the few people that really emphasizes time in almost every one of his movies. And that's not really a theme in any other science fiction movie in the way that it is in this movie. So I ended up actually at a 9.5 because I do think this is probably one of his most audacious films to date. Yeah, I had an eight. This obviously isn't his first first space travel movie, but I think this is one of the first ones that I saw that focused just as much on the people on Earth as it does the space travel. I feel like most space movies, as soon as they go, like that's the story. That's where we're staying until they come back. That's where we're staying. But this movie... Um, once Murph is older, um, we we kind of split it 50-50, like what Cooper's doing and then what Murph is doing back on Earth. So I think that's kind of novelty in and of itself. And also, I don't know if it's too dystopian the way our planet's going. I don't know if I don't know if this is too dystopian. <laughs> but and then I also a little more humorous. This is Christopher Nolan, I think, at his best of impersonating being a human being and trying to convey emotions that he has seen humans display in real life. I think this is the most he's tried to tap into that because he's an alien who doesn't experience emotion. That's my theory because most of his movies are pretty cold emotionally. Tenet, I mean, character doesn't even have a name, which I didn't even realize till the day after, which tells you how confusing that movie was. But this movie, he really does try to bake in the emotion. So I think it's him at his best impersonating a human. Well, after that stirring theory... (laughs) Dad, what did you think? Well, there have been a lot of space movies, and I think you were right about they tend to start with a dystopian world and all that. But to craft a story that is scientifically on target, when you have Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about the fact that this is uh, so plausible within the reality of the math and the science, and then make it it, as entertaining and to make a story out of it, I thought that was the novelty. And so 8.5 for that reason. That's an 8.67 between the three of us. Classicness. Dad will let you anchor this one so you can go last, but... To me, obviously, the number one thing, the science aged well. I really don't think there's any major plot holes. You might be able to say here or there that there might be a quibble, but it's probably over something small. I think the biggest commentary or biggest critique that someone like Tyson has levied against this film is, is I wouldn't fuck with a black hole. I don't know why they're so close to it. But outside of that, I think he genuinely believes that most of this is pretty accurate regardless of any of that and i think that that adds a layer of cleverness intrigue but also staying power that's going to make the movie last but at the same time you have to think about the general audience and how this will be perceived how many people are going to be able to pick up this movie without that background and find this accessible and so the fact that it goes a bit above my head it goes above your head dad I I don't know how classic that makes this, so I'm kind of caught between two minds on that. So I'll go to the other points that we often make. I think that some of the diversity is top-notch, although I would also say that this is very American-centric. 
if we're trying to save all humanity, the fact that Americans and the United States' NASA are really the only ones involved seems kind of myopic. Also, there's a little bit of Casey Affleck as a predator vibes when he's with his family that just kind of don't sit well with me, but otherwise I'm not identifying a ton of huge issues, just some small quibbles here and there that I'll take with it. But the fact that I think the emotions are still there, they're still raw, you have such great acting performances, and the science holds up, I'm going to give this just a little bit above my normal threshold of neutral and go with an 8. I had a 10. Perfect 10 for me. Uh, I would touch, I think you, you hit it right on the head with the diversity thing. And I, I think the fact that it's like the United States NASA, but you have to remember they're doing this in secret. Like this isn't like the United Nations or something is like appointed the U.S. to do this. They're like hunkered uh, underground building this in secret. And when you look at the Lazarus missions, like the wall, um, obviously you don't, I, I can't assume where they're from, but it looks like there's a lot of different ethnicities of those people that are up there because we only see one of them. Uh, man. Um, so I think, I think it was more diverse um, than the crew that we spend time with. But yeah, this movie, I think for me, it's just like, it's, it's, is classic because this is, I talked about how Endgame gave me an emotional experience. Unlike any other movie, this movie gives me a physical uh, reaction, a visceral reaction more than any movie I've ever seen. The score is up there. I think made one of the greatest scores I've ever heard up there with like Halloween and the Incredibles and all that stuff. I, I just, I feels like I'm having a heart attack for two and a half hours, which isn't great. It doesn't sound great, but it feels great to go through. And it's just, I think it's so classic to watch. And I, I agree with your point that as time goes on, people are going to come back to this movie more and more because the science does hold up, you know, if it was real, you know, like in real life, I think it does hold up. And I think people are open to that. All right, dad, your category. The science holds up really well. The fact that you have a hero that is a female and a strong character, and there's another strong character, uh, makes it much more sexually diverse. But the cast is predominantly white. I mean, we have one black character who's the principal, who's got, what, four lines? There is a crew member who's black. Okay, but, uh, yeah, it, it's it's still, it's just not a very diverse casting. I'll argue against myself there for a second there. Yes, there is a cast member who's black, but he's treated as mostly a Star Trek red vest when it comes to this movie. And so to that extent, I gave it a few points down or gave it a point down. So I went with a nine because I think this is going to hold up very well and it's going to be something that comes back around. Now, just a four foretell this when we come to remaining questions and this is part of the classicness that I didn't give it a step down but I have the major plot hole in this entire film okay well we both have some very interesting remaining questions I had a few but I didn't think they were all that great or lots of things to necessarily bring back up but I'll be curious to find out where you guys are at Rewatchability for me, I'm assuming that this will be a 10 for you, Adam? <laughs> yes, 100% slam dunk 10. All right, fair enough, easy said. Even though I came back to this and I'm like, why don't I find this among Nolan's best? I still think due to the length, due to the inaccessibility of some of the science, I think I'll return more often to this, but it's not going to be among my favorites quite yet. 
So I'm going to go with a 6.5. Where would you rank it uh, real quick uh, uh, in Nolan's filmography? Where do you think it would rank roughly? Obviously, this is very subjective to me. Yeah. I think I put Inception because it's outside of a franchise as number one, which is hard for me because as much as I love the Dark Knight and Ledger's performance, and I think he is the Joker that everybody else is going to live up to, don't give me that Joaquin Phoenix bullshit. I, I'm not taking it. Oh. Yeah, I no, no. I You can tell me that the release date is now set for Joker 2, and I just have to continually ask, who wants this? We didn't want the first one somehow, and yet it's the highest-grossing R-rated movie ever. Why? It makes no sense to me. It's not a comic book film. It should just be about this guy who dresses up as a clown. Stop trying to turn it into something. And no, and I'm not going to go off on diatribe. <laughs> okay, sorry. You got me all, all distracted. But So I'd go The Dark Knight 2. I'll probably go Batman Begins 3. I'll go Dunkirk 4. And I'm starting to, because the prestige, and I know I'm interrupting where we'll eventually find that because we are going to do the prestige, which Dad really enjoys as a film. I think that this might go over the top of that just because the prestige to me was really great that first time you watch it. But once you know the twist ending, it really just doesn't have the same impact. I would go Interstellar, Dark Knight, Inception, Dunkirk, and then the rest is the rest. But <laughs> I know, I've just never been high on Memento, but some people put that at the top. I, it's just one that's never quite appealed to me. And Oppenheimer, I think, has a chance to be up there for me next year. I'm very excited for that. I'm looking forward to it. That could be great. Or it could be Tenet. I just, as much as I used to look forward to every Nolan movie, there's this ping in the back of my mind that just says, it could be another Tenet. <sighs> I'm going to pray. RDJ's in it. It can't be. It, it won't be. <sighs> yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, I'll pray. Killian Murphy's coming back, so maybe maybe that's something. But yeah, I just, I don't know. Dad, for you, rewatchability? My standard is, is a seven is uh, a, something I would watch again, right? And so I'm giving it a seven because part of me wants to sit and rewatch this to see if I figure out stuff better the second time I watch it. And maybe it'll have more impact and meaning to me the second time. So I went with a seven for that reason. This will be rewatched by me at some point here before too long, just so that I can see if I understand it better. I'm a little surprised that given that I think we were discussing it ahead of time, you were not necessarily a fan of the movie, that you'd end up having a higher rewatchability score than I would. The last hour is what did it for me. It just seemed like a really long payoff, though, to get to that last hour at, at times. Nolan is not brief. No. He needs an editor sometimes. Well, all supposedly artistic directors need a, a better editor. Otherwise, we end up with a bunch of 80s films. Not Zack Snyder, come on. Oh, no. <laughs> Even though I thought the Snyder Coat was better, it wasn't that much better. All right, so then audience score for this one. We had a 93% for Google users. We had an 86% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a final 8.95 score. So to recap the categories, we had a 6.33 for Legacy, 6.83 for Impact Significance, an 8.67 for Novelty, a 9 for Classicness, 
7.83 for rewatchability, and a final audience score of 8.95, giving us a final total of 47.61. I would currently place it on the list. Just above Casino Royale, but under Do the Right Thing. Interesting. Again, two movies I would have never placed around this one, but you find interesting bedfellows every week on this show. Could Nolan do a James Bond film? I think he wanted to, and that's what Tenet came out, but at this point, I don't want him to. No. I would have said yes before Tenet, but now I'm like, no. I, and I, I think that the opportunity would have been there for this next one that they, they're going to do because it's going to take a while to cast the new actor, and he doesn't have any strings attached after Daniel Craig had died in the last one, but I just, no, just leave it alone, do your own thing, do Oppenheimer, and we'll see how that one goes, and you might be able to regain some of my trust. All right, you both had some fairly interesting remaining questions. Dad, since you think you have the plot hole of the movie, let's let you go first, and we'll work from that. Okay. What was killing the Earth was the blight, why wouldn't the blight end up in the space station, Cooper? I mean, you're moving people and you're moving food sources and grains and all these plants. Why wouldn't it move with that? And if you were able to control it from not moving to the space station, then you should have been able to control it on Earth. I don't think that applies to the rules of movie justice. I do think that you have a logical point to make. But given that they never set up the parameters of what the blight was, but rather that it was just killing one major crop every like decade or so, I don't think that there's anything to say that it, it couldn't have been manufactured in a lab of some variety. The seeds that somehow were not part of the blight series that would end up being killed. And so maybe they don't bring back wheat, which I think they established had been killed by the blight but they can still at least have corn because they did have crops that were still available that the blight hadn't adapted to, to get. Okay. I still think that that's a plot hole. Okay. Did you have any other questions? Yeah. And why did he Cooper, when he gets back, never even ask about his son? <laughs> Tough look for Tom. Yeah. It's like, Oh, I've got grandkids. Where are they? He never asks about him, never sees him. It, he might be dead, but still, you'd think that he'd at least want to see his grandchildren once. Although, I feel, I feel like, because I think he assumes that they're both dead, because when the doctor says, like, it's named after your daughter, and then he, the way he says it kind of makes Coop think, like, oh, maybe she's alive. And I feel like Tom is five years older than Murph, roughly. I think they say during the movie that it's three because I think he's 15 and she's 12 or something like that. I oh, do okay. think they do say it at some point. I can't remember the exact ages, though. It's like really early on in the beginning where he says, I have two children, one's age and on, so on. Okay. So maybe he does ask, but it's off screen. But I assume that Tom had already passed. I think we are forced to assume that only because Murph's at the last stages of her life. And they don't make mention of Tom at all. But yes, I, I to not even ask the question or to be introduced to the rest of the family and just like, hey, here's this kind of semi-young-looking uh, guy or at least below-middle-age guy who's going to show up on my deathbed 
and we're going to have an emotional moment together and no one's going to ask questions. Well, and yeah, she goes in to see Murph and her whole family, her children, her grandchildren are there, and he doesn't say anything to any of them. It's like they didn't exist. They were just creatures standing in the way that he had to work through to get to her. It's a huge family, too. She's a ton of people in that family. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, is that we get no introduction that she has any romantic life whatsoever. And we focus up until the last moment where Murph figures everything out on getting Tom's family to safety, only to have them never mentioned again. Yeah. I, I just don't quite get that. It, it seems like something was massively cut somewhere. You are already at two hours and 50 minutes. What's three hours? And as violent as Tom was about taking the family to begin with, and now she's going to do it behind his back, she does nothing. He just stands there when she comes up and hugs and goes, Dad's communicating with us. Yeah. I, it didn't I mean, seem plausible to me, but okay. A whole sequence between the two of them and her burning the crops and the rest of that. I mean, he looked like more of a horror movie villain coming out of that than anything else, and that's why I said he had some predatory vibes coming off of him i don't know it just it never quite sat right to me he didn't ask because we didn't care about tom that's why we only cared about murph yeah kind of yeah well that's the science you know the elitists were only interested in the smart ones well tom was second in his class which which that kind of rubs me the wrong way that he wasn't smart enough to go to college but he's second in his class how, how dumb is this class <laughs> well Okay, having just had my class reunion, I am not answering that question one way or the other. <laughs> you know some of your old classmates do listen to this, right? Okay. Well, the ones who listen are the really smart ones. Do you have any others? No. All right, Adam, you had a whole bunch for us? I, ha I have four. Uh, so on the ocean planet, if Case, when he says, like, go get her, Case... And this thing just flies across the water. Why didn't they just have Case go get the beacon and come back? They're already fighting time, and they know every hour is seven years, so they want to get in as fast as possible. Why are they making Bran and Doyle jackass across this planet through water when Case can just zip over there in five seconds, grab it, and come back, and they can go? Because they're not making rational decisions, which they go through that emotional upheaval after the tidal wave is over, at least the first one, and she's all distraught because she understands the consequences of her actions, but they're emotional beings and they aren't supposed to act rationally. I feel like Coop was acting rationally, though. Maybe. And he kind of, yeah. Yeah, I feel, I see it either. I mean, she's, that's supposed to be a pivot point between the person who wants to accomplish the mission and the person who wants to accomplish the mission for what's going on back home. Yeah. I get why you did like from a drama perspective, but just like, doesn't make any sense. Second, if knock knock is 60% uh, on the humor setting and we see at the end when Tars is like knock knock, what, what is the lowest possible setting? Like how could it get 60% less humorous than knock knock? How is there that much left to go? A Russian national. <laughs> okay <laughs> Germans are 10% Fair, okay Sorry to all my German siblings A Dad jokes at 40% Those are good, I like those better than knock-knock jokes though. My third question, could you guys do it? Could you go on this journey? 
No. Hell no. <laughs> Not hardly. I feel like I what would get me is the Romilly thing. I couldn't do the spinning. I would I would pass out. So let me pose it this way. Are you proposing that we're on the endeavor, or excuse me, the endurance, or are you proposing that we're one of the original twelve? Because I couldn't do either, but I definitely couldn't do the original twelve. That's yeah. I meant the endurance. I don't. I don't know if I could. I couldn't do the the original the Lazarus, but uh, the endurance. I think I could do without minus the spinning. I would. I don't do spinning. Are you referring the original twelve? The ones that went out to explore the individual planets and likely to never come back. Okay. All right, because the original seven is what how it's characterized as the first NASA astronauts. So, okay. And your fourth question? Yeah, I think we kind of already answered it. So I had a professor in college uh, in an astronomy class who was good friends with, um, I forget his name, Kip. Uh, what was his name, the scientist? I think Thorne. Thorne. Kip Thorne. Uh, he was like best friends with Kip Thorne. Um, so he, he worked on, he helped Kip on some of the science in this movie. Not enough to get like credited, I don't think, but he, he did work with him on it. So I was going to ask you guys if it tracked for you, the science, because um, it did for me. But it, it seems like it tracks for you guys in, a, in like a, in an intellectual level, but maybe a little, you get a little lost with it. I trust that the scientific community says it holds up and that's good enough for me. There is in no way I could ever criticize this film on the science. I am not that type of person. You want to want me to comment and destruct something on tone, emotion, acting, cinematography. Those are my wheelhouse. Trying to pick apart a movie, whether or not it's scientifically accurate, will never be something I can really do on this show unless it's something that's so below the comprehension of the average human mind that even I could say, yeah, there's no way that's accurate. The extent of my physics knowledge is that it doesn't make sense when Coyote ends up falling while the Roadrunner stands on a cliff that's been broken off from the main body. That's the extent of my physics. That I know is wrong. But after that, now, I have Tyson's book on explaining physics to the common man or something like that uh, that I have to read yet, but... I'm not sure it will make much inroad in my memory or mind. All right. So for mine, the first one being, it's kind of a two-parter. One, does Cooper find Brand? I have to assume that he does. Now, the question is, do you get everybody on the space station to move to that planet then? And are they ultimately successful? I would say yes. I mean, it's it's very much Inception, the top spinning at the end when Bran goes to the colony. It's like, oh, did she build it all herself or is Cooper, you know, but like, uh, yeah, I, I assume that Cooper found them and then they were able to get the space station there and kind of get off the ground that way. I would assume so. I, I would I would think it would only make sense that it would be the completion of the story. I think that's where the movie would like you to go and thus why it doesn't need to go there because the assumptions made. But it just leaves something a little bit ambiguous to mind. And the only other kind of ambiguous question, and it's something that I think I would need to watch a few more times, at least that last scene, is whether or not Dr. Edmonds, I think it, or is it Dr. Wolf, is alive. Because I think she's burying his plaque. And so I think that's supposed to signify that she didn't find him, she found his ship, but that she's alone on that planet because he's perspired. 
But if he's perspired and she's now setting up a colony, are they going to fare any better? You mean expired? What did I say? Perspired. Oh. I don't think he's sweating. <laughs> Maybe it was hot. Maybe he died from heat exhaustion. I don't know how that planet works. Yeah, could be. I, I assume he's dead. I Yeah. She looks too sad with the plaque to, you know... I mean, why? Yeah, why would she build that if he was alive? That'd be odd. Well, I'm not sure she's building anything per se. I mean, she's burying the plaque, but she had that little nook sook, you know, with the with the plaque on it. I feel like that's okay. Oh, honey, I'm 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 honoring you, building a memorial to you, so that someday when you're dead, no, I do I do think the timing is a little weird, though. To your point, like because then it pans to the colony, so it's like. Maybe he maybe he was alive when she got there, and then he just died, and they started it together, and then he died. But then Cooper's third wheel in it, so that's kind of weird. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah, that final sequence also makes it seem like there are other people with her. And I don't think there's really yeah. anything to support that necessarily, other than it just kind of feels like there might be. But, again, just kind of an open, ambiguous ending that I would expect from Christopher Nolan. Yeah. All right. So final thoughts for the week. Dad. I don't really have any. Okay. Adam? Just on the movie. Anything you want. Recommendations, the movie, anything you'd like to individually plug. Okay. Yep. Yeah. This movie, like, you know, like I, I rambled on and on how much I love this movie. Go watch it if you haven't seen it. It's a thrill ride. You know, it's three hours, so it's a little long, but I think it's worth it. And yeah, and go uh, go check out my podcast, Movies and Podcorn. I just did an episode uh, with Tom on the state of comedy and where it's going, where it's been. Spoiler alert, it was better back then than it is now. But uh, go check it out. We're doing 21st Century Comedies this season. Next season, in a couple months, we're doing Harry Potter. Um, so if you're a Potterhead, that'll be fun. Follow us on Twitter at The Circuitverse, and you can check us out on www.thecircuitverse.com. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Adam. And I have to agree, the episode that we did together before was excellent. I thought we had a great discussion, and I'm looking forward to being able to listen to it myself. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing me on. I had a blast. I'm looking forward to more collaborations in the future, for sure. Sounds good. All right, that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing our second Akira Kurosawa film, and possibly his best in the 1950 classic, Rashomon. Written and directed by Akira Kurosawa, co-written by Shinobu Hashimoto, starring Toshiro Mifune, Masayuki Miro, and Takashi Shimura. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.